I'm Derek Alexander Pope, Managing Director of the Arc of Justice Institute, and welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. Each week, this podcast brings you the lost stories of the heroic and vital contribution that lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. This week, on the last episode of our first season, we travel to Memphis, Tennessee, to have a conversation with W.J. Michael Mike Cody, one of the four lawyers to represent Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on what would become a fateful day in American history. He had been in Memphis a number of times making speeches, trying to uh, generate uh, help. And as a matter of fact, he had actually, uh, I think, been in Memphis maybe a little bit before the sanitation strike started, uh, trying to, his group tried to recruit people for what they called the Poor People's March which was going to happen in the summer of 1968 in Washington, D.C. The civil rights movement didn't uh, uh, start in Montgomery, and it didn't end with Dr. King's death. That was just a stage of it. It's different now, but it's every bit as important as it was there. Memphis, Tennessee, home of Beale Street, barbecue, and the blues. But it's also the home of the law firm of Birch, Porter, and Johnson, one of the oldest and most prestigious law firms in the city. Late last year, I went to Memphis to talk with W.J. Michael Mike Cody, one of the lawyers who represented Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on April 3rd and April 4th, 1968. Many people remember that Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis on that day. Some remember that he was there to come to the aid of striking sanitation workers. But very few people know about the legal efforts associated with lifting the injunction that was preventing Dr. King from holding a march in connection with his help to those workers. Mike Cody remembers it well. And on a rainy fall October afternoon, Mike and I sat down in an ornate conference room right across the hall from his spacious corner office. And as if he were describing events that took place the day before yesterday, Mike vividly recalled the legal climate of Memphis during the civil rights movement and how just six years after graduating law school, he became part of a high powered legal team to represent the face of the American civil rights movement. But first, we talked a little bit about Mike himself. Well, I'm a, you know, when you're 83 years old, uh, you can tell a too long a story for your interest, but uh, I was born here in Memphis, 1936, and grew up here. A lockdown segregation, uh, the way Memphis was in those days. Went to public schools, uh, graduated from uh, college here in Memphis at Rhodes College and went on to the University of Virginia uh, to law school. Uh, During that period of time when I was in school, uh, I majored in political science and I was always interested in law and government. And so uh, I took my courses to prepare me for being a lawyer and to do that. I thought when I graduated from the University of Virginia, I was gonna go to uh, Philadelphia because I had a a big job offer in Philadelphia uh, to work for a large law firm there. 
And uh, I had clerked as a law student one summer, summer of 1960, for a guy named Lucius Birch, who had a law office here in Memphis. And he let me clerk for him during the summer. I never had any idea I was going to come back here to Memphis. So when I got the job in Philadelphia in October of 1960, uh, I went uh, home for Thanksgiving and had uh, dinner with Mr. Birch, and I told him about my good fortune that when I graduated, I had a job in Philadelphia paying, paying me a lot of money at that time. And he said, well, that's great. I'm awful proud of you, but you don't want to go to Philadelphia. I said, I said what do you mean I don't want to go to Philadelphia? He said, well, uh, you need to come here and work with me. Uh, things are really uh, starting to move forward in the South. The civil rights movement, there's a lot that lawyers need, we need to do here, and I need some help. And at that time, he was working to uh, integrate the department stores, the parks, the museum, uh, art galleries, the zoo, things that were completely segregated. And he said, we need to file lawsuits or we need to negotiate, get those facilities integrated, and I need somebody to help me. And, uh, and how did Mr. Birch get involved in that aspect? That's a good question. Uh, he and Mr. Birch graduated in 1936, the same year I was born, from Vanderbilt Law School. And that was during the Depression, and very few people had jobs coming out of law school. But he had an uncle here in Memphis named Charles Birch, who had a law firm, the one we're speaking in now, where I came to work. And, and at that time, uh, Mr. Birch's uncle, Charles Birch, was a senior partner. So he gave Mr. Birch from Vanderbilt a job if he moved here to Memphis. So Mr. Birch did. Well, when he arrived in Memphis, he found that uh, there was a boss here in Memphis named E.H. Crump, and he completely controlled the city. And Mr. Birch didn't like anybody telling him what to do as a lawyer or public figure or anything else. And so he began to fight the Crump machine and by joining up with uh, uh, Estes Kefauver, who became a United States senator, and Gordon Browning, became, who became a Tennessee governor, they defeated the Crump machine in 1948. And so he, he developed his interest in, in doing something in the community, uh, not only being a lawyer, but to change in the system. Memphis. Uh, was unique in the 1920s, 1930s, and 40s in that Crump allowed uh, blacks to vote. Blacks generally couldn't vote anywhere in Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, but in, in Memphis they could because Mr. Crump controlled their vote. And he had a deal with them, with the black community, black leadership, which was mostly Republican at that time. Most of the black political leaders were Republicans. And so he allowed them to vote for the national Republican nominees if they would agree to vote for Mr. Crump's local and state nominees, which allowed the black leaders to get the patronage plums. And so they could control who was appointed U.S. attorney, postmaster, uh, all the federal jobs that opened up. And so it was a deal that they sort of worked out that allowed 
the African-American political figures to control the federal uh, side of things, where Mr. Crump controlled everything else. Interesting, interesting. And Birch, uh, uh, Birch didn't like the fact that Mr. Control, Mr. Crump controlled everything. So that's how he got started. So you graduate from law school and he tells you, you don't want to go to Philadelphia, he needs your help here. How did he convince you to so get a high-paid job in Philadelphia? <laughs> he, uh, he, he tricked me. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, the job in Philadelphia, and you have to remember how far back this was, 1960, 61. Uh, they offered me $800 a month uh, in Philadelphia, and to me that was big pay. Okay. And more than a lot of my classmates were getting, and certainly more than most people coming back to Memphis were getting. And he said, I'll match that. And I said, well, that sounds good. Uh, how are you going to do it? And he said, uh, I'm going to pay you $300 a month, not 800 but 300 But here's the deal. I'm going to give you half of all your fees that you bring in. Of course, it was five years before I had any okay. fees to bring in. <laughs> so he got me to work for $300 a month. But I never was sorry. I mean, he was a marvelous individual and... Uh, trained me and allowed me, he sort of protected me. I could do my law work representing insurance companies and the railroad and handling divorces and automobile accidents, all the things we had to do, wills and things like that. I had to do that kind of work, but he protected me and allowed me to work in the community in civil rights. And I got involved with the ACLU and without Mr. Birch kind of having my back I'd never done that. If I was just in another law firm or by myself, I couldn't have made a living because people wouldn't wouldn't send their business to me. But he was such a good lawyer, and they had to have him, that uh, they tolerated his liberalism here in Memphis. What kind of cases were you working on when you were involved with the ACLU? Yeah. Well, uh, there were all kinds of cases, of course. Uh, you know, one, uh, two things in, in particular that, that I remember. We, we filed lawsuits to integrate facilities, uh, but uh, the Freedom Summer Movement 63 was going on down in Mississippi. And young people would come from up east in Chicago and other areas down here. And they would spend their time in the summer uh, helping people to register to vote in Mississippi. Memphis was segregated, but Mississippi was dangerous. Mm. And they'd come down here, and we'd work with them in workshops, prepare them on Mississippi law, things like that. Uh, they'd drive a Chicago plate, Illinois plate car, or a New York car, come here to Memphis, and we'd swap out a Memphis car for their uh, New York car, where they took it down to Mississippi, because it's dangerous to drive through Mississippi the New York or Illinois plate on your car. It attracted attention of the Klan or others that would do harm to these people. Of course, uh, when James Meredith integrated Ole Miss, we worked with the Justice Department. Uh, you know, just south of Memphis, as you get outside the city limits of Memphis, you're in Mississippi. And James Meredith, in his march, was shot just as he crossed the Memphis city limits going into Mississippi. And so Dr. King and Stokely Carmichael and others came in here, and we were part of, of that sort of organizing those kinds of things. 
So Dr. King had actually had some involvement in Memphis, some presence in Memphis prior to. Yes, yes. He had been in Memphis a number of times making speeches, trying to uh, generate uh, help. And as a matter of fact, he had actually, uh, I think, been in Memphis maybe a little bit before the sanitation strike started, uh, trying to, his group tried to recruit people for what they called the Poor People's March, which was going to happen in the summer of 1968 in Washington, D.C., where he was going to bring people from all over the country to the mall in Washington to uh, create kind of a tent city with caravans and things to sit on the mall until Congress dealt with poverty and the disparity. But it was the sanitation workers' strike that brought Dr. King back to Memphis in March and April of 1968, and some of the aspects related to that strike that led to some legal issues that needed to be addressed. Mike tells us the background of both the strike and those issues and how he became part of the legal team. Well, well, the sanitation strike and, and, and was sort of a moving target and it initially was basically a wildcat strike. It didn't have any connection with national unions. Two things happened during the February uh, late winter. The first thing was that is there were rules that if it was raining hard and people showed up at the lot to get ready to get in the trucks to go out to pick up the garbage, but it was raining too hard to uh, pick up garbage that day. Uh, everybody went home, and the uh, black sanitation garbage workers lost all the pay for that day. But the white workers, who were some truck drivers or supervisors, they got paid for the day. And that was one of the early grievances. But the, the spark that set it off was uh, another day, it was lunchtime, and there were two sanitation workers sitting on the back of the truck having their lunch. So I think it was drizzling and they were getting out of the rain by sitting up under the lip of the truck. And uh, someone inside the truck also having their lunch just uh, without knowing what they were doing hit the compactor lever. And the garbage compactor came down and crushed both those men and killed them. And it was quickly discovered that there was no insurance for them. There wasn't even money to bury them. It was a terrible situation. And you have to remember, you know, in those days, picking up garbage was not like it is today. Today, I take my garbage buggy from the back of my house and I roll it to the front drive, uh, to the street. And it's got all the recycled stuff in plastic bags, and it's there. But in 1968, the garbage worker had to go to the back of the person's house through an alley or a driveway or some way through the backyard and dig the garbage out of the garbage can themselves mm. and put it into a galvanized tin tub and put it on their shoulder and carry it to the street and dump it in the truck. So by the end of the day, that worker was completely covered in garbage, liquid garbage, solid waste, everything. And they had no uniforms, no way to take showers. And matter of fact, some of the women told us uh, during the strike, they couldn't even let their husbands come in the house until they hosed them off mm. outside because their clothes were so spoiled 
about working with that garbage all day. So that was a situation that people just said enough. And so T.O. Jones led a wildcat strike and they just walked off and uh, started demonstrating. And they demonstrated through February and March and they weren't getting very far. Uh, the city was hi hiring scab workers, people who would come in, take their jobs, and uh, uh, they wouldn't recognize the union, uh, and it was really getting uh, tough. At that time, it was strictly a labor movement, but the ministers, local ministers, had begun to pick up. And one of those ministers was a guy named James Lawson. And Lawson had... Uh, uh, gone to uh, divinity school with Dr. King hmm. in Boston. But before that time, he had studied under Mahatma Gandhi in India the whole concept of nonviolent demonstration and civil disobedience. And he's the one that taught Dr. King those tactics of how to have nonviolent demonstrations in the face of abusive power, just like Gandhi had done with the British. And so when the strike was going nowhere, uh, Lawson called King in Atlanta and said, Dr. King, I need you to come here and lead a march because we're going nowhere. King's group didn't want him to do that. They see the SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and Andy Young was his main administrative guy in that. Because as you mentioned earlier, at that time, the focus was on the preparation of the poor people's That's campaign. That's right. And they didn't want him to get distracted in Memphis. Mm -hmm. And Dr. King, of course, I wasn't there then, but Andy said in reports, uh, Dr. King said, if I can't go to Memphis and lead a successful march for the poorest people in Memphis, we won't have a chance in Washington. In April 2018, the University of Memphis School of Law held a program to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. King. Andy Young took part in that program, and he shares the same thought that Mike is talking about here. I didn't want Dr. King to come here in the first place. Not because we didn't want to be with the garbage workers, but he had convinced us that we had to have this poor people's campaign. And that meant we had to go to Washington with 3,000 people from all over the South and North, organizing the poor, and knowing that the Congress adjourned in July, around the 4th of July, how were we gonna get people to Washington? And he turned his back on us, refused to listen to us. Uh, there was a thousand reasons why he should have had a good night's sleep and slept late and gone on to Washington. And at midnight, he said no, I'm going to catch the six o'clock plane to Memphis. I can't separate Martin Luther King's awareness of the imminence of death and his determination to come here rather than to be in New York or Washington where he was scheduled to be. So he said, we're going. But the problem was he didn't organize that first march that was in March of 1968, not the one in April where he came back to, but the one in March. He, he arrived from the airport. They just put him in the front of the march. They walked off, and uh, he hadn't prepared it. His people hadn't prepared it. And there were kids at the back of that march who would not buy into Dr. King's or Jim Lawson's nonviolent 
civil disobedience. They thought this whole minister business of turning the other cheek and all would never work again. And they started tearing placards off the sticks that they were demonstrating with. As it got up toward Beale Street and Main Street, they began to break uh, windows out in the shops. And people began to loot. The police overreacted, tear gassed the crowd. People started uh, running around uh, stealing merchandise. And the police came down with billy clubs and gas, and people were killed. And so they took Dr. King quickly back to what was the Rivermine Hotel, which was the closest where he'd be safe. And when he got back to the hotel, he called a press conference and he said, I'm coming back to Memphis and I'm going to organize the march myself and we're going to do it safely. And it's going to be nonviolent and we're going to be successful. Well, of course, when he said that, the city of Memphis and their city attorney went to federal court and they said, uh, Judge, uh, uh, King's coming back here to do another march. You know what just happened? We had a march where people were killed, property was uh, destroyed, and if King comes back, we can't even guarantee that we can protect him from violence if it happens again like it did before. And the judge gave them a temporary restraining order or a temporary injunction barring Dr. King from having a march here in Memphis. And now the legal efforts were taking center stage. The case was called City of Memphis versus Martin Luther King Jr. and others. Civil Action C-68-80. Presiding over the hearing was Judge Bailey Brown. Judge Brown had once been a partner in the firm from 1946 to 1961. You recall that Mr. Birch was recruiting Mike Cody to come work for the firm. At the same time, Judge Brown was being nominated to the bench by President Kennedy. In March of that year, Mr. Birch wrote Mike a letter saying that Bailey Brown has a broad and liberal outlook that the times that are coming demand. And Mike tells us about the phone call that led to his getting involved in the case. Now we've got a little legal dispute on our That's hands. Right. And so is this where you get involved? That's right. how, how does that happen? Well, I was sitting right here in this office in Memphis about 10 o'clock on the morning of uh, April 3rd, I got a call from the ACLU, a uh, guy named Chuck Morgan, the ACLU local affiliate in Atlanta, the southern affiliate, and a guy named Mel Wolf in New York. And the reason they called me is I was the only lawyer they knew because I was the ACLU lawyer. I was the chairman of the ACLU group here. And I was actually by that time on the national board in New York. So they called me uh, because I was the only one they knew and uh, asked me if our firm would represent Dr. King. And I said, sure. But then I realized that, wait a minute, I'm just five or six years out of law school and Dr. King needs a heavyweight <laughs> and I'm a lightweight. But this guy who had brought me to Memphis instead of getting a big job in Philadelphia, he was right across the hall. So I walked across the hall and told uh, Mr. Birch that uh, Dr. King wanted us to represent him to get the injunction lifted, and I would help him do that. And I thought he would immediately say, okay, but that's what he was doing. 
But he said, no, uh, I wanted two things to happen. One, I want to be invited to do it. I don't want to look like we're volunteering. And uh, so I called him back and I said, uh, we needed some engagement. We need a telegram. We're not going to charge any money to do it, but we need to be asked to do it. And so they sent a telegram. And the other thing he said is, I want to meet personally with Dr. King and have him describe to me why it's so important. And the background of that, I think, is Birch was going to do it, I knew from the start, but we represented banks and insurance companies, Illinois Central Railroad. In 1968, King was not too popular around here, particularly with the clients that we had. And Birch wanted to satisfy himself that it was really important. And so uh, Chuck Morgan said, Dr. King is on his way to Memphis. He'll be there. Matter of fact, he'll be there in, in this afternoon, and we'll arrange for you to meet at 3 o'clock in the afternoon at the Rain Motel uh, with Dr. King. And so those were the two conditions that uh, Mr. Birch had. And so the telegram uh, arrived, and we met with Dr. King at 3 o'clock on April the 3rd, the day before he was killed. We're talking with W.J. Michael, Mike Cody in Memphis, Tennessee at the law office of Birch, Porter and Johnson, the firm that represented Dr. King on April 3rd and April 4th of 1968. So you're going to meet with Dr. King at three o'clock right. at the Lorraine Motel. Right, and I should mention that by that time, there was an integrated law firm here in Memphis. Matter of fact, they had really one white lawyer and four or five black lawyers. And they, they were the ones that were handling all the NAACP um, school desegregation cases, represented sanitation workers in the strike. And they were already involved in all of that even before we were. So when we got the telegram, when we got asked by the ACLU, we joined forces with that firm. So the lawyers that went down to the Lorraine Motel that afternoon were two lawyers from that firm. One was named Walter Bailey, who's still living, and the other one was Louis Lucas, who's no longer living. They were from that firm, the Ratner, Sugarman, Lucas firm. And then from our firm, it was Mr. Birch and me and Charlie Newman and David Kaywood. So there were six of us that went down there that afternoon to sit in the room and talk to Dr. King about the hearing. And how did that meeting go? Well, you know, I'm just a kid and it was, uh, you know, I never really had any experience with Dr. King. I knew what a forceful personality Mr. Birch was. And in that room, we were sitting, if you get a chance to go to the Lorraine Motel, the room is still preserved. There are two twin beds in the room. And so on one side, you got the suits, uh, you know, the lawyers. We're sitting on one bed and knee to knee on the other side is Dr. King, uh, Jesse Jackson, Ralph Abernathy, uh, Jim Lawson, leaving somebody out. Anyway, the people and with... Was Andy Young? Andy Young, okay. sure, absolutely. He was the main guy. Uh, they were on the other uh, other bed, and it's sort of knee to knee. Andy occasionally said something, and maybe Jim Lawson, but other than that, it was just Mr. Birch and, and Dr. King talking about why this march 
was so important. And in that conference, we didn't want Dr. King to testify himself in court because we didn't want him to be exposed to them making a circus out of him on the witness stand. So we designated Andy Young as his spokesman. He was gonna be Dr. King's spokesman in court the next day, and Jim Lawson was gonna be our witness from the standpoint of the local sanitation workers. And so they were our two witnesses mm. the next day uh, in court. Frierson Gray, who was the city attorney for the hearing, and who was also a participant in the University of Memphis Law School program commemorating the assassination of Dr. King, had this to say. The most memorable part of the hearing to me was how Judge Brown handled it. Because the first thing he did is that uh, when uh, Reverend Young came in and said he was representing King, then Judge Brown said, does he have authority to represent Dr. King and bind him in everything he says and he'll agree to do. And Reverend Young said yes. So you've got six lawyers involved, mm -hmm. as you say, sitting knee to knee on, yeah. on opposite sides of twin beds. How did the six lawyers decide to coordinate who would do what when it came down to representing Dr. King right. and, and the others? Well, I think, again, I emphasize uh, Mr. Birch had a statue in the community. He was older. And he had had a history of being really the best lawyer in Memphis. Mm. And that's why I went across the hall to get him. Okay. And uh, once he agreed to do it, everyone else sort of deferred to him. Mm. And so fast forwarding to the next day, in the course of that hearing, none of us, none of the other five lawyers opened our mouths. <laughs> Mr. Birch did all the questioning of Jim Lawson and Andy Young and uh, our witness. So after it's in, in the room, after it's decided that Andy Young and Reverend Lawson is going to be the principal spokesperson, principal witnesses, what's a young lawyer doing the rest of the day? What, yeah. do, what do you do at that point? Well, different things. Of course, uh, the injunction had just been served the afternoon of April 3rd, right before we met with Dr. King. We knew the injunction had been issued by the court, but he hadn't been served with it, and we hadn't seen it. And so uh, Dr. King had that injunction, and the city had filed a complaint, uh, allegations of why it uh, was necessary. And so once we met with Dr. King, some of us had to go and prepare an answer and papers to say why the injunction shouldn't be granted. So Mr. Birch and uh, the other lawyers came back here to our office and uh, literally worked most of the night preparing the papers uh, to file in court the morning of April the 4th so the matter would be a legal issue mm -hmm. there and all the paperwork would have, have been done. One of my jobs was to uh, talk with Andy Young and Jim Lawson about what their questions were gonna be. And uh, we, we talked a lot of that in the meeting where everybody was there, but I was trying to sort of outline that a little bit more and prepare them uh, as witnesses. And so for a while I stayed around down there and frankly, I can't remember how long I was there, uh, when I came back here, whether I even came back here. But the next memory I have is going 
down to the Mason Temple. And this would have been uh, uh, the evening of April the 3rd to hear Dr. King make that last speech. Now, whether I went down there with Andy or Jim Lawson or whether I drove down there, I can't, I can't remember. But I remember going into the side door of the sanctuary, sitting on the pastor's riser there, whatever you call the stage where the pulpit was, uh, when Dr. King made that, uh, made that speech. And so, but historically, I think it's important to realize that when Dr. King was going to make that speech, he, he decided he wasn't going to go. Uh, he sent Ralph Abernathy down there, and Ralph uh, Abernathy called back when he got there and saw the crowd. And he said, uh, called back in the Rain Motel, he said, I'm, I, I, I'm not going to be able to make this, but you're going to have to come. So Dr. King went down there to make what was the last speech he would ever make, and he hadn't prepared to make it. He didn't have the first speech prepared, and he just went down there. Abernathy introduced him, and he made that speech. What do you remember most about the speech? Uh, specifically, did Dr. King actually talk a little bit about the court action, the injunction, the work with lawyers? He did. He uh, mentioned in the speech, told the crowd, well, first of all, he sort of talked a lot about uh, uh, the history of how they got there, you know, how the movement had gotten there and how important it was to support the sanitation workers. And then he did mention, as you say, that the city has gotten an injunction to prevent us from marching. Reverend Stefan Ferguson from Atlanta gives us an impression of what Dr. King said that night about the injunction. The issue is injustice. The issue is the refusal of Memphis to be fair and honest in its dealing with its public servants, who happen to be sanitation workers. Now we're going to march again, and we've got to march again, in order to put this issue where it's supposed to be. We have an injunction tomorrow, and we're going to court to fight this illegal, unconstitutional injunction. And we've got lawyers that are going to be in court the next day to fight that injunction. But I'm here to tell you that regardless of what happens in the courtroom, we're, we're, we're going on. We're going to be marching. Did that make you a little apprehensive? A little apprehensive <laughs> because, uh, you see, here was the, I'm, I'm backtracking here a little bit. Uh, Doc King said initially when they talked about the injunction that he didn't care because he had walked in the face of injunctions down in Alabama and Mississippi and, and Georgia before, but they were state court injunctions, chancellors or circuit court judges. And what happened here, this was a federal court injunction. And he had never snubbed his nose and marched in the face of a federal court injunction. And that's why we, we were called, because the ACLU and the NAACP as well, but mainly the ACLU, they did not want Dr. King to march in opposition to a federal injunction because that federal injunction, just like in all the earlier days, had been the protective device where uh, a judge in, uh, in Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, issued an injunction saying that you, you had to desegregate the schools, the transportation. The federal uh, courts were protecting us. And uh, ACLU did not want Dr. King 
to march in opposition to that, even though Dr. King threatened to do it. And so that's why we were wanted to get it lifted in court on the morning of April the 4th. Andy Young shares his thoughts on the importance of the injunction. There was always this tension of how we would deal with the courts. The whole injunction business had been a problem of ours all the way back. We normally did not obey state court injunctions. We didn't obey state court injunctions, and we found that when we were going into the federal courts, if we went to Republican judges, appointed judges, we got treated better than if we went to Democratic repeated judges. Now, the reason for that was that there were no white Republicans. So the old black and tan Republican Party nominated almost all of the Fifth Circuit. We never lost a case in an Eisenhower-appointed judge. We would not break a federal court injunction. And so that's why, that's why the court case here was so important to us. Of course, there's a little bit of speculation, but what do you think would have happened if the federal court had let the injunction remain and Dr. King, of course, not having been assassinated the next day and went ahead and defied that court order? What do you think would have been the relationship between lawyers and the movement at that particular moment? Well, uh you know, it's hard to, spe hard to speculate because we never got to, got to that point. I think our fear, and this is the transcript, it's a, it's a wonderful transcript to read. And it's available in federal courts and at the Library of Congress. Uh, it's a long uh, transcript which has a verbatim report of what the police said would happen in the city and then what Andy Young and Jim Lawson said would happen if, if Dr. King led the march and what would happen if he didn't lead the march, which is the question you're answering. And what we represented the court and what we were afraid of, and I think what allowed us to get the injunction lifted was the fact that we convinced not only the court, but really the city by the end of it, is if, if, if Dr. King leads this march, it's gonna be planned, We've got uh, a way to handle it like it's been done before. Uh, there's a federal judge, uh, Johnson, down in Alabama, who we used an injunction that he had, which I won't go all the details, but we used it to show that it would only be five marchers abreast. There'd be no sticks on the signs. Uh, you'd have constant uh, distance at the side of the march before there and the, and the end of the street, the curb, where the police could do, you would have constant communication with the police. The police would be allowed along the march route. Uh, you would have uh, marshals wearing armbands to monitor people in the march, all along the march from start to finish. And we argued that that would be a better chance of a safe march, that if you don't allow Dr. King and he's in federal custody, the marshals uh, arrest him there uh, for violating, showing up to violate the injunction. And not only would it have been Dr. King, it would have been Andy Young, Hosea Williams, they were named defendants as well. So there'd be no SCLC professional people to do the march. And you would have the crowd angry at Dr. King being arrested, 
leaderless, and we convinced the court, and I think the city too, by the time it got through and we went back to the judge's chambers at the end of the day, even the city acknowledged to the judge that we will more or less agree. Uh, they were dragging their feet to be agreed, but they, they agreed that that would be safer. And so the judge hadn't really, <laughs> you know, it's interesting I'm talking about this judge. Uh, when I came to work here in the summer of 1960, the name of this law firm was Birch, Porter, Johnson, and Brown. Well, between the time I uh, worked here in the summer and came back after law school, John Kennedy had appointed Bailey Brown, the partner in this firm, as the federal judge. Mm. So here, Lucius Birch is arguing this case before his former partner, mm. Judge Brown, okay. who had been appointed by John Kennedy. Mm. So Judge Brown was already open to helping because he understood we had the stronger part of the case and you couldn't just not have a march like this. Mm -hmm. And so he he said to us in the chambers, this would be about uh, 5.15 maybe, I don't know, yeah, about that time, that he was gonna allow the march to take place and on the way we described the injunction and for us to go back and prepare the injunction uh, as he had said and bring it in the next morning, which would have been the morning of April 5, and uh, he would sign it. So uh, I know here, I, I, I think I've, I've jumped from Dr. King talking about the injunction in his speech all the way back to your question. That, but that, that, that's okay, so let's go, <laughs> you want to go back, let, to, let's go back to the speech that night. You, as you mentioned, he talked about the injunction. Right. And so you you spent the afternoon meeting with Dr. King and the, the rest of the ministers right. in the room. Right. You've spent the early part of the afternoon preparing Reverend Lawson and Andy Young for the testimony that they're going to give the next day, right, the next morning right. in the hearing. And now you're hearing Dr. King make his make make his speech, yes, uh, his yeah. impromptu speech. He's spoken about the the the, the pending injunction, right. but now he moves into what we now call what people now think is a more prophetic yeah. statement, is an expression of his own mortality. What are you thinking at that moment when you hear that? Well, you know, first of all, you had to realize that. None of us knew Dr. King was going to be killed that night. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, he, we, he, talked, he talked that way, but it, it, it certainly didn't occur to me. But there was something eerie and unreal about the whole evening from my standpoint. First of all, it was a warm day, early April. It had been raining, and it was still raining and drizzling and misting and the church had no air conditioning, and they had opened up the windows in the top of the church, and so the wind and the rain was coming in, and tornadoes had been approaching Memphis through um, Arkansas into West Tennessee, and it actually a lot of tornado damage over across the river in Arkansas, and it was a spooky kind of a night, and. Uh, uh, I remember there was a, a attic fan up in the top of the church and the wind was making it sort of clack and you'd hear that fan turning around and uh, and in that and, and the place was packed with uh, garbage workers, sanitation workers, their families, labor unions, ministers, and it was just a packed jam church. 
And at the same time, Dr. King stood up and, and made this, this speech. And the thing I remember, two things I remember is whether it was the nature of the night or what he said, it's the first time I can remember the hair on the back of my head stood up, electricity in it. I mean, it's just like something spooky was, was happening. And uh, as Dr. King made that, his final part of that speech, he, he first talked about how earlier uh, he'd had to get off the plane because there's been a bomb threat. They'd had a threat and said, we got to evacuate the plane and check for a bomb. And Reverend Stefan Ferguson reminds us of why things that evening sounded so spooky. I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The next morning, the hearing took place in federal court. It began around nine o'clock and did not conclude until about 530 that afternoon. Charles Newman was one of the lawyers sitting knee-to-knee in room 316 of the Lorraine Motel the day before, preparing for the hearing. He was also one of the lawyers in the program at the University of Memphis Law School. Here's what he had to say about the hearing and its outcome. We had strong law. We had strong facts. We had a legendary client. We had eloquent witnesses in Jim Lawson and Andrew Young. And we had a fine judge in Bailey Brown. I don't think the outcome was ever in doubt. Let me just add quickly that among those ingredients that I listed, uh, the most important was the eloquence and the power of the testimony of Jim Lawson and Andrew Young. I've never heard testimony that uh, was that memorable and that uh, they explained the rationale for the, uh, the march and they gave Judge Brown and all of us an assurance that we would not have otherwise had. After the hearing, the lawyers went to meet with the judge to iron out some details about the next day. Mike had always thought that he had taken Andy Young back to the Lorraine Motel to give Dr. King an update on how the day's hearing went. But during our conversation, he remembered something differently. And so I asked him, did he take Andy back to the Lorraine Motel? I didn't, although I would have sworn to you I did take him down. As I read in 2018, when I got copies of all the uh, FBI transcripts and all of that business, there was a uh, lawyer for Dr. King, who his name is escaping me, but I will remember it, uh, who had flown down from Chicago. He was Dr. King's personal lawyer. Matter of fact, wrote Dr. King's will and was uh, his lawyer from, in Chicago. And he flew down here to Memphis, but he didn't get here until noon of the day of April 4, when we were already in court. He went to the Lane Motel, and Dr. King told him, 
he said, Chauncey, the trial is already going on. You're late. Get over there to federal court. So he got a taxi over to the federal court building, and he didn't come up to the uh, lawyer table. He sat back in the audience section during the hearing. But when we went back to meet with the judge after the hearing was over to find out what the judge was going to do, uh, Chauncey Estridge, that's the lawyer's name, Dr. King's lawyer, he went back with us because he, he was a lawyer even though he hadn't been answered the question. So he went back with us. When we got back there in the room, Andy wasn't with Andy Young wasn't with us in the room because he wasn't a lawyer. So Ernest Withers, I, this I found out later, 50 years later, from the FBI transcript. Ernest Withers, a photographer that took most of these pictures that I've given you, he gave Andy, he's the one that took Andy back to the Lorraine Motel. So according to the FBI reports, when Andy gets back, and of course Withers is working, he's not only a photographer, he's working undercover for the FBI. Hmm. And he's reporting to the FBI what I'm telling you. He takes Andy back, and Andy goes in. At that time, King was in the room with his brother, A.D. King, on the floor, the ground floor below the room that Dr. King and Abernathy had up on the second floor. So they go in there, and uh, Dr. King says to Andy, he says, well, Andy, what happened? Why hadn't you called us? What, why have you been so long? He said, well, I think, it, Andy tells him, I think it went very well, but the judge is still considering it. I think he's going to allow the injunction, but the lawyers are still meeting with him. So obviously I did not take Andy back because mm. he's already there. Mm. The person that I do take back is Chauncey Estridge okay. because he I, he had a taxi to the court. We walked back here. We got the uh, my car, and uh, I drove him back there and dropped him off. And he arrives there about five. According to the FBI, he arrives about five thirty-five or five forty. And King and Andy and the rest of them are watching the Walter Cronkite National Program on television, which is talking about the hearing and the sanitation mm. strike. And so Chauncey comes in, and that's the first time about a quarter to six that King knows that, and Andy knows that the injunction has been lifted because Chauncey tells them. Now, at that time, I'm then on on my way home, I'm driving home five or six miles. And uh, King then, at, that's 5.45ish, he goes upstairs to get ready to go to dinner. And Aber he and Abernathy have the room upstairs. And so he, he walks out 10 minutes after that to the balcony. And Billy Kyle, where he's going to Billy Kyle's house for dinner, was out there on the balcony. Andy Young was down on the, still on the first floor where King had left in the parking lot. Uh, Jesse Jackson, them all on the first floor. And so King is standing there on the balcony talking to Ben Branch, who was a musician that was going to play uh, at the dinner that night. Uh, and he leans over, and that's when he shot it at one minute after six. So that all took place 
just a short time after Chauncey told them that the injunction had been lifted. So the hearing on the 4th begins at about, what, 10 o'clock in the morning? 9.30. 9.30. And you said it goes all the way through around about 4 or 5 o'clock. 5 o'clock-ish, yeah. And then we go into uh, 4.30, 5 o'clock, we go in the judge's chambers, and he announces to the lawyers, I'm allowed to march, go prepare the papers. And as you mentioned, he was going to be prepared to sign that order the next day. Next morning, the, the next morning, morning of April 5. As a matter of fact, Going still forward, on the morning of April 5, David Kaywood, another lawyer in my office, and I took that order to Judge Brown on the morning of April 5, even though Dr. King, by that time, had been killed, the judge signed the order because the march finally took place, of course. What day did the march take place, do you remember? I want to say it was April the 8th. Uh, this would have been April 5, when King was killed. His widow, Ms. King, uh, came and had, his, had him brought back to Atlanta. And they had the funeral in Atlanta sometime between the 5th and the 8th, is my memory. And then she came back with the children on the 8th of April to participate in the march, which finally did take place. And it was a silent march. No one said a word all the way up from the Claiborne Temple to City Hall. That's a flurry of legal activity for a less than a 48-hour period of time. During that moment, what is your, what, what's your most significant memory in that legal representation of legal efforts? What stands out to you the most? Well, I think, obviously, the speech that King made, but from a legal standpoint, the discussion between King and Birch and Andy Young about the importance of being able to march, to demonstrate uh, the African-American community doesn't have the funds that the Chamber of Commerce has to take television ads out, or we don't have big newspapers to spread it out, we can't get on national TV. We've got to get in the street to demonstrate, to have people react and, and come to our support. And that was a significant thing. Uh, Birch kind of cross-examined King, you know, as a lawyer, saying, well, yeah, what makes you think you can make this march peaceful? And then Andy chimes in and he says, Andy talks in the transcripts, it's a wonderful part of the story, about how the generation is different and that Andy's father wouldn't agree with what Andy is doing. He, he thought you did not get in the streets, that you would uh, go, everything would be legal. You'd handle things strictly through the courts and through the normal sort of NAACP type procedure. But Andy and the young people realized in, in even more extreme black power uh, advocates that you had to get in the streets and you had to demonstrate and you had to make noise and that that's why this was so important. The changes in Memphis since 1968 to where we sit now in 2019, same changes in the nation. What do you see? What do you not see? And what do you tell young lawyers who are entering into the space of 
advocating for civil and human rights? I do talk to young lawyers a lot. And the first thing I say is if you think it's over, it's not over. Uh, the civil rights movement didn't uh, uh, start in Montgomery and it didn't end with Dr. King's death. That was just a stage of it. It's different now, but it's every bit as important as it was there. There are different things. You've got different groups. You've got women, you've got uh, gays, you've got still blacks. And I tell them the other big thing that you have to realize is you ought to go back and read the book Dr. King wrote in 1967, which is, as you mentioned, titled, Where Do We Go From Here? And he is saying in that book, we've gotten the right to vote, we've gotten the right to eat at a restaurant, we've got the right to go into the museums and the art galleries and uh, these things, but if our community is threatened with poverty, none of those rights make any difference. And what King was doing in 1968, opposing the Vietnam War because it was taking all the resources away from the urban communities into the war. And he was moving his whole campaign to things like poverty. And, and that's where it is today, it seems to me. Uh, and I think that's what Dr. King would come back to Memphis and say, you know, nothing's changed, guys. We've got just the same disparity between the black and white community in terms of economics. We've got the same segregation uh, in our schools. And I tell them the things you need to remember about Dr. King. When I saw Dr. King in 1968, his approval rating in the community, the national community, was about 22%. They didn't like him. The FBI thought he was a communist. Uh, he was despicable to most people in the white community. But 22% of the black community and a few liberals, whites, admired him. Today, he has in that same community a 99% approval rating because they have changed their memory of Dr. King. Now they are remembering Dr. King as I have a dream of everybody holding hands and walking together. Uh, uh, everything is fine and good. If Dr. King came back today to Memphis, Tennessee in 2019 and said the same things that he was saying in 1968, his approval rating would drop from 90% back to 25% or 30%. And so what they're doing is they think that you can just get along with the image of Dr. King and the civil rights movement as it was and not how it would be if Dr. King was leading that civil rights movement today. Mike, this has been incredible. Thank you so very much. We do appreciate you joining us on Hidden Legal Figures. You said an hour. I'm sure I've talked for an hour and a half, but I don't you think, can cut it out. I don't think our listeners are going to complain at all. Well, I enjoyed it, and then uh, it's my watch says 12:15, which means it's 1:15 for you. Mm. And so, you want to go around? Let me buy you lunch. All right, excellent. Thank you. W.J. Michael Mike Cody, a hidden legal figure that changed America.
In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.